I, I want you to know how happy you're carrying a tab, aren't you? Oh, it makes me so happy. Like that, you and my uncle, only two, but you're making it happen. Carrying the tab, that's great. Okay, yeah, there you go. Drink more tab. See Rock City. Okay. Um, I once got to a fight with a guy who I went to college with, who married into the Chapin family who own Rock City, over the birdhouses. <laughs> Uh, over the birdhouses, over where they were manufactured, and it was like the one time where I, 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 I took a real hippie bent toward it, and, uh, and, and he didn't, um, and he's wrong. Let us pray. <laughs> uh, Lord, uh, we pray that you would speak to us today in uh, the book of Acts, that we might see your glory, and uh, that we all might see a little bit more of ourselves and cast ourselves upon your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're at Acts chapter 9. Saul's been converted. Uh, he's been converted, and uh, God appears to Ananias and says, I want you to get Paul, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. No way. No way. I know this guy. He's coming up to Damascus, and he's not the guy that, uh, that I, I want to be uh, relating to. Uh, and yet he goes to his house. He feeds him. He baptizes him. And then Paul goes on his merry way. So I'm going to read a pretty good chunk of Acts chapter 9. And uh, beginning with the 20th, well, 19b. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, this is Paul, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Not really all that hard to prove, but anyway. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he was, and uh, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spake and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied the word of the Lord. Okay, one of those movies I'm not allowed to recommend, but I maybe have seen bits and pieces of it, Animal House. Uh, you, you remember this, before you were Christians, you were, just kidding, you remember the scene where uh, the Delta House uh, has already been on probation and Dean, actually the purple sheet is a joke, they were going to put Dean Wormer instead of Dean Pearson uh, down, and there's this scene where Dean Wormer says, well, you're on probation, and the Deltas say, well, we're already on probation. And he says, well, then from henceforth, you are on double secret probation. <laughs> well, what, what is that? Uh, they don't know what it is. They just know 
that it's bad. And uh, here, uh, Paul is on double secret probation. Uh, he's got to earn his keep. Uh, people are looking at him uh, suspiciously. And the worst part of it is that uh, they're looking at him suspiciously on both sides. Because after Paul's stay with Ananias, he begins to preach boldly that Jesus is the Son of God. And the response of the Jews, well, we already know the response of the Christians in Damascus. It is, wait a minute, isn't this Saul the persecutor? And the Jews' response is what? Wait a minute, isn't this Saul the persecutor? Now, last week we talked about the personal wondering whether the change would last within the individual who becomes a Christian, and they wonder, will this change in me last? And this week we see others asking if Paul's change is for real. Can you think of, of a worse situation than to be on double secret probation as an individual to know everybody's watching you? Right? I mean, it's ironic for me to say that in the season of, of Santa Claus because we know he's watching you. Uh, and um, it's a little bit creepy. Uh, I told you that uh, somebody wrote an article up in Canada that uh, are claiming that Elf on the Shelf is a ruse to get kids used to 24-hour surveillance, um, <laughs> that it's some huge national security plot, and, uh, and I kind of believe it. <laughs> I really like conspiracy theories. I think that they're, they're very interesting. And I came from a family that was 100% against conspiracy theories. Even in, like, I, I still have a family member who's very closely related to me that still is convinced we never walked on the moon, that it was filmed in Hollywood. And, uh, and he is ridiculed, uh, ridiculed by our family. But anyway, rightfully so. Um, but uh, this, this is really kind of a conspiracy theory moment with St. Paul because everybody's wondering, Christians and Jews alike, what in the world is going on with this person? And if you've known anybody, and maybe you've experienced this in your own life, when you become a Christian, uh, there is a change and people sort of sit back and wait just to see how it's all going to pan out, uh, what you're going to be like, how you're going uh, to relate uh, to them. And thankfully, Paul does what any other human being who's been called into a relationship with God is supposed to do. He does what he's called to do. He acts naturally. And so what he does is he begins uh, to preach boldly. Now, we remember that Paul is really well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures, right? He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He's from up, uh, uh, up in modern-day Turkey where uh, he was probably, um, not probably, he was uh, part of... Um, uh, Greek probably would have been his first language. And for most of the people living in and around uh, Judea and, and Jerusalem and, and all the outlying areas, uh, most of those people that were hearing uh, Jesus' ministry and seeing Jesus' ministry, and indeed that were going to be under the influence of Paul's ministry, uh, didn't actually speak Hebrew. Uh, they spoke Aramaic. Uh, it wasn't until, um, and you all know this, when did Israel become a state? 1940? Right. Lots of different answers. We'll have to look that one up. Um, uh, 1940-something, uh, that, um, that uh, all of a sudden with this diaspora of Jews coming back into Israel, uh, that um, they had to learn Hebrew. And so actually the Hebrew that they speak in Israel today is the Hebrew of the Bible for the first time in a thousands of years. They reclaimed the language as an everyday language and not just as a religious language language. 
So uh, it became the language of the people, but at this time it's not. But here you have Paul, who is a um, uh, powerful Greek influence, speaks Greek, speaks Aramaic, speaks Hebrew, knows everything in and out. And it was because of his deep religious conviction that he was going after the Christians. And so the Christians are watching him saying, this can't be for real. But it turns out to be for real. But then we get a little bit of an insight into why the Jews in Damascus, some in particular, are very angry with him. I said that when uh, last week, that when Paul was coming up to Jerusalem, armed with a letter from the high priest, uh, he was leaving the political jurisdiction of Jerusalem and going to Damascus. And so in order for him to get Christians, Jewish believing Christians, uh, Christian uh, Jews who believe in Jesus, Get to get them persecuted, to get them prosecuted, he had to kidnap them and bring them back to Jerusalem. He couldn't do it there. And so, you know, there's not uh, like a Facebook site where you can get on and be like, oh, I see that all these Jews in Damascus like Jesus. You know, there's not any of that. And so how is Paul to know that there are Christians in Damascus and how is he going to find out who they are from these people? Because listen, this is what they were so upset about. Uh, when they said, um, uh, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Right. We fed him the names. He was supposed to come up here and get these troublemakers out of our synagogue and take them back to Jerusalem, kidnapped, bound. And yet now here he is preaching Jesus in the synagogue. Is this really Saul? What's going on? What happened? And of course, what happened was he had this road to Damascus conversion experience. And they are feeling this huge sense of betrayal. Expectations were running high that Paul was the answer to all of their problems. And uh, now he's complete letdown and worse. A huge betrayal has taken place. And so uh, their tactic is let's kill him. Let's kill him. And there's this very vivid image of uh, the disciples lowering Paul. Uh, I still actually have it in my mind. I can remember in fifth grade VBS, they put on like this very grainy VHS video. And um, it might actually have been Betamax. And uh, and it has Paul, this puppet Paul being lowered in the basket. And um, and I don't know why, it just stuck in my mind. So anyway, that not that you need to know that, but now you're all going to go look for that video. So uh, he's being lowered in the basket in order to make his way up. Uh, back to the hotbed of, of Jerusalem, uh, where things uh, have uh, really uh, been stirred up. But who stirred them up? Paul. Saul was there from the very beginning. He was the one that held the coats at Stephen's stoning. Uh, he's the one that's going around ravaging the church in and around Jerusalem. And now he's taking his mission to an international level and going off to uh, Damascus. And the answer to to kill him uh, is not a new one. It's been around for a while, uh, and uh, we see uh, we see that when um, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, what do they want? They wanted to kill not just Jesus, but who? Lazarus. They want. You know, I say this a lot, but I think it's worth repeating a thousand times. I mean, life is hard enough to have to die once, but poor Lazarus had to do it twice. <laughs> Uh, you know, can you imagine being in the bosom of Abraham and then God says, sorry, dude, you got to go back. Uh, what? 
What? And then he comes back and there's the wonderful mosaic in uh, the church in Bethany, which has Lazarus coming out of the tomb wrapped like a mummy and, and these people turning away, holding their noses. Because, of course, as the King James says, he stinketh uh, because he was in the tomb uh, for so many days. Uh, so this idea of, of killing off Paul, why? Because, I mean, this has been the crazy, uh, and we experience it today, but let's just walk through it. This idea that if we just kill Jesus, if we just kill Paul, if we just kill uh, Ignatius, if we just uh, kill, um, uh you know, whatever saint uh, we want to kill through the ages, uh, if we just kill the Christians in northern Nigeria, if we just uh, kill the Christian believers in Iraq, uh, Christianity will just go away. Well, history has shown what? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Well, one, because God's plans won't be thwarted. Uh, Two, uh, think about Jesus standing before Pilate with Barabbas. And the crowd begins when Pilate says, who shall I release to you? What does the crowd yell? Barabbas, right. They yell Barabbas. Now, here's the thing about Barabbas. From a political point of view, Barabbas was a zealot. He was a murderer. He was involved in some sort of uprising against the Roman officials. And so the thing about Barabbas is they're going to release him. He's a repeat offender. He's coming back. You know, I don't know if there was like some three strikes your outlaw in the Roman Empire, I don't know. But nonetheless, I mean, if Barabbas goes back into the field as a zealot, I mean, all the Roman authorities have to do is to roll some chariots up in there and get their SWAT team out, and they just sort of get rid of Barabbas again. But with Jesus, you can roll as many tanks in there as possible. You can kill as many people as as you would like, and yet he'll never be thwarted, right? Even death has no dominion over him or even the authority of the Holy Spirit to work in the lives uh, of of the believers. And uh, one of the most vivid images of this uh, through the years is the martyrdom of Thomas Cranmer in Oxford in, uh, in 1554, five, uh, because in 54 it was... Uh, Latimer and Ridley uh, were tied to the stake, and uh, uh, Latimer uh, was getting uh, pretty old at that point, Ridley not so much, and uh, they brought Cranmer, who was in jail at the time, up to a tower. You can still go to the tower today. It's part of a church, actually, St. Michael's at the North Gate, and they brought Cranmer to the top of the tower to watch Latimer and Ridley be burned. And um, as the flames began to rise, it was a really awful scene because uh, uh, Latimer, uh, the old man, was, um, uh, he was he was burning very slowly. And so they eventually hung a, a, a bag of gunpowder around his neck in order to, to kill him. Uh, but as the flames went up, uh, Ridley was a little bit distressed. And the older Latimer said, you know, uh, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, for today we light an, a candle in England that shall never go out. Uh, now, of course, uh, the authorities had Cranmer thinking, well, he's going to see this and he's going to cave. Now, what you need to know about Cranmer is he was a very old man. And at this point, uh, they basically, whatever the 16th century equivalent of waterboarding is, uh, they did it to him. They kept him up without sleep for days on end. 
and they finally got Cranmer after doing this for a couple years. They finally got a year. They finally got Cranmer to sign a document that said, "I take back anything that I ever said or preached. I take it all back. I recant." Now they were still going to burn him at the stake. Uh, but it, it was a huge, major coup. And not only that, they said, now we're going to humiliate Cranmer, and we're going to take him up to the university church. And we're gonna, they actually knocked a pillar out of the university church in order to build a platform for him to preach on because the crowds would be so big. And uh, they all crammed into the university church, and uh, Cranmer rose, and he began to preach the gospel. Well, they were mortified. They're like, that's not what the plan was. The plan was for you to get up and say how wrong you were about everything, not how right you were about everything. And so before he could even finish his sermon, they took him down, they dragged his old decrepit body to the same place where they burned Latimer and Ridley, and they lashed him to the stake, and as the flames began to rise, he put out his right hand and burned it first and cried out, this is the hand that hath offended. And then he died. Right. So at that point, you've got to believe that, that his... Uh, prosecutors and persecutors uh, would have thought, well, that's that. Uh, we finally have gotten rid of the problem. Uh, well, did they? Well, here you and I are, 500 years later, standing on their shoulders, right? Where were Anglicans because of what they did and the stance that they took? And so death is never enough of a threat uh, and is never powerful enough uh, to snuff out um, to snuff out uh, the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I just wanted to um, stop and talk about death uh, for a minute. Uh, many of us are gripped uh, by a fear of death, uh, even for those of us where it still seems very far off. I think the Internet has a lot to do with that. Uh, you get on the Internet and you say, I have all the symptoms of the common cold or AIDS, right? <laughs> um, I mean, not to make light of it, but that it kind of is that, and... Uh, you know, you'll go to the, uh, I have a family member who took uh, one of their children to the doctor and said something like, well, I was reading online about this particular vaccination where if they have this vaccination and the doctor was Dr. Levin, Robert Levin, voice of the million dollar band. Um, and, uh, and so he's, uh, Dr. Levin is, uh, looks really good for his age. He's in his sixties. He's a grandfather. And, uh, my, my family member took this child to the uh, doctor and, uh, and said, well, I'm afraid, Dr. Levin, if you give this child this vaccine, that they're not, uh, that this will happen. And Dr. Levin said, well, I'm new here, uh, and so uh, I've never actually heard that before. Uh, so I think that there's, there's, a part of, uh, there's a part of all of us that really does want to believe the worst. And because of the Internet, especially people in my generation, especially people of a certain gender, really uh, are afraid of death. Uh, and and certainly for those who are, are near death uh, because of your age, uh, one, death is something that naturally we all contemplate and ought to contemplate. Uh, there was a very interesting article that came out recently uh, in the New York Times, and David Zoll wrote a follow-up piece on it uh, about uh, how uh, Americans hate to go on vacation. Or not that they hate to go on vacation, but they actually can't go on vacation uh, because they seem to. Uh, there's a great New Yorker cartoon uh, with a guy um, uh, on the beach with his laptop doing something, and uh, and the, the wife comes out like dragging the kids and and looks at him, and she's like, uh, "I was kind of hoping that you'd take a break for vacation." 
And he's just, you know, I mean, that for him, that was his vacation. And what the New York Times article said and David Zoll echoed was that what they found is that Americans are actually very afraid of having free time where their minds wander. And where their minds go to, inevitably, is we begin to contemplate our own mortality and, and what's going to happen uh, at the time of our death. And there's nothing wrong with worrying about, like, I mean, it's very funny, though, because it, at one point in time, uh, when you're really young and you talk about death, you talk about it in terms of like, well, I just don't want to die this way, right? I, I don't want to, and it's crazy. I'm like, I don't want to burn to death. You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be buried alive. You know, things like that, that very, really, uh, probably are not going to happen to you. Uh, but as you get older, you, you still are worried. You know, it's like Woody Allen said, you know, uh, I'm not a, a afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when he shows up. <laughs> and, and, that fear is, is, is natural, uh, but what we see in Paul's life uh, is that death really wasn't a consideration uh, because death has no dominion over him. And he actually articulated this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, uh, I I hear that, and it kind of gets me fired up, uh, but then I sort of sink back into reality of this idea of of, of death uh, in, in my own life and how things can change in the twinkling of an eye. Um, I, I hadn't planned on talking very much about it and uh, even saying as much as I did in the announcement at 9 o'clock, but already emails are flying everywhere. But um, uh, one thing I love about the Advent clergy is how this story begins. So Paul and Craig Smalley were at a concert at Workplay and leaving very late at night. That's so great. A wonderful couple, and they're crossing Fifth Avenue, and this guy just comes plowing through and hits Paul Smalley and keeps on going just takes off. And uh, I was with Craig and Paula uh, when Paula started to kind of piece it all together a couple hours later and and still just sort of like, what? What happened? And as the doctors came in and, and said, well, this is kind of what we're going to have to do. Uh, she's going to have to have uh, some pretty invasive pelvic surgery. Uh, she's going to be confined to a wheelchair for about three months. Uh, and if you know Paula, that's going to be tough. And... Um, and, uh, and she just would say, you know, I, I'd rather not hear it. I, I'd rather not hear it. But an understanding, I mean, she kept saying, how did this, ha- can you believe this? This is crazy. This is crazy. And, and it is. In an instant, uh, they leave uh, a concert of an REM cover band. Uh, and they, I know. And, and they're walking across the street. And, and she gets hit by a car. Uh, and and we're, we're grateful to God uh, that, that she... Is, is in good health and she's, 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 she's broken up, but she's okay. Uh, but, but how things 
can can change instantly. And even, um, you know, recent events in in our own parish, whether it be uh, the, the death of, of Cam Cole or, or teenagers who have taken their lives. I mean, I feel like in this past year, if you've got kids, you've held them a little bit closer. Uh, you've held them a little bit closer. Uh, and you realize uh, just how beautiful and sacred and how much of a gift uh, life really is. And Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and life to the fullest, that that life being a gift, exhausting of its potential and not being weighted down uh, by a fear of death. Right. Uh, Paul tells us elsewhere that that perfect love uh, casts out all fear. Right? That, that's what it does. The actual ability to have freedom in life, uh, to be able to be who you are, to be able to be who God has called you to be, and to go through life free of judgment, the sting of death, which is sin and the law, and just to be able to, to be and, and to enjoy life. I mean, if you had asked me when I was 23 years old, like if you knew, and Lauren gets a little bit bent out of shape when, I, when we go to restaurants, I'll ask the waiter, now, if I'm going to prison tomorrow for the rest of my life, what should I eat? And there have been a couple, couple waiters who have thought, okay, um, so back it up. Uh, but it's a good question. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll have a great meal. You'll have a great meal if, if you do that. Um, but, uh, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, that movie that came out along to uh, Morgan Freeman, Bucket List, remember that came out and everyone started making Bucket List? If you'd asked me at 23, what I want uh, on my bucket list, I probably would have said, you know, I want to climb the Himalayan mountains or I want to go do this or I want to go do that. Uh, but is that really how you would want to spend? I mean, it may be. It may be. But I think that for a lot of us, uh, we'd want to spend it with our family uh, just doing what we want to do, but in the course of our own daily life and just being with them. I mean, I've never heard any, and I've been with people when they've died, I've never heard anybody say on their deathbed, I wish I'd climbed Everest. Or, you know, I wish I went into work work one more day. Just one more day. Uh, But uh, if there's any regret, which I hear very rarely, which is good, uh, it's not reconciling with a child or a sibling uh, or or, or something that, that has not been made right uh, in that life, which that person could have made right uh, by simply saying, I'm sorry, or I love you, right? Uh, and so that's the real bucket list, right? That's really. And so if you can keep death in its proper place, which is that it's inevitable, it's appointed once for man to die and then judgment, says the author of Hebrews, uh, but that that transitional point in our lives from this side of the Jordan to the next is not something to be feared in the way that the rest of the world fears it. Because the pressure of the world on us is that you got to make it now. You have to make a name for yourself. And very few people that I know of have sought to make a name for himself where it has stuck. Where it has stuck. Uh, normally the people that we read about, I think, are their names stick on accident. And even think of people who have really made a name for themselves through the years and wondering... Uh, a hundred years from now, will will our you know great great whatever grandkids will they even read about Karl Marx? Will they will they even read about uh, uh, will they have a Marx Engels reader in their sociology 101 class in college? Probably not. 
Probably not. In fact, I'm, you know, I, they'll probably be sitting on Cuba drinking a margarita or a mojito or something. So viva Fidel. Um, uh, but they're probably not going to uh, read about that stuff, even though for us it just gives you perspective of, of how time works and that in an instant uh, things can change and, uh, and really everything around us eventually is going to turn to dust. Right? There's a mortality to it. Uh, and so I'm not really into uh, the whole idea of, of, of legacies uh, apart uh, from the legacy uh, of the gospel. And so we're reading about Paul now, not because of Paul. In fact, we find out from Paul's own mouth, he wasn't necessarily that great a preacher. He was rather unattractive. And others had said that. Uh, and um, he was hard to get along with. I mean, we hear in his missionary journeys, and at that point, they decided to part ways. Right. He was a bad roommate. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I put my name on the milk and you know who drank it? Paul. Paul drank it. Um, so. But why we're talking about him now is the way that God used him and that he simply surrendered himself and said, I'm going to give myself wholly over. And time and time, I, I desire to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Very much a John the Baptist ministry. I must decrease so that you uh, might uh, increase. And so as, uh, and the reason, I mean, I preached a sermon, uh, two weeks, two Sundays ago, kind of about this thing. Uh, I, I hit on the whole idea that why Christmas is hard for some of us is because it's the absence of, of a loved one. And whether it's the first year or whether it's the 35th year, Christmas can still be really hard. Uh, and Christmas can remind us of, um, of some really bad times, uh, in our lives. And yet, uh, because of God's great love for us, he's able to redeem those. So in fact, the most sweet and wonderful Christmases that I've had have been after that Christmas where I was in the Sahara Desert. Um, and in a time when I probably had every reason in the world to say, Christmas stinks, uh, and, and just little things. Like I was with my grandmother in central Florida, where everybody else's grandmother lives, and, um, and uh, my grandmother's by herself except for her dog, and uh, she, um, I said, well, what are we going to do about a tree? And she said, well, I didn't plan on getting one because it's just me and your aunt Georgiana and I are going to go out to, to dinner. And, and so I went and got, and just decorating the tree, uh, with my grandmother, with these ornaments that my dad made back. You could see where he took the stone chisel back in the caveman days and, <laughs> and, and made these things. And another creepy one, my grandmother had made an ornament out of some of his baby teeth. And I thought that's, uh, <laughs> So if all you want for Christmas is your two front teeth, you might get them. You might get them. Sorry, Grandma. But um, for some reason, my dad didn't want that ornament. Um, it actually works, believe it or not. It actually works. Uh, so, uh, but that was such a sweet and wonderful time because, uh, you know, it sounds like a Lifetime movie but like or a Hallmark movie. But, like, I mean, that's when, like... Christmas is really, really real, and it helps you put things into perspective uh, of how blessed uh, you really are. And I'm sure that all of y'all are at this point where you could just be like, you know, presents are really great, uh, but I hate the pressure of having to buy a gift for someone who has everything that they could possibly need or want. Uh, and so for Christmas this year, my wife and I, we asked one, what do you want for Christmas? Love and acceptance and cold, hard cash. And... Uh, <laughs> So get this. So Lily, I told you Lily came home the other day and said, hey, what's the deal with this Hanukkah thing? 
And, uh, you know, Morris Bloom gets eight nights of candy and gifts, and we get one day. And so I got into that with her, and, uh, and she felt like she was being ripped off. And I tried to explain to her that it, it's, it's okay. And, um, and so I went to their little holiday program, and it was very, like they had, uh, their holiday program had a Christmas song uh, about Jesus, and then they had a Hanukkah song, and then they had a Santa song. So it was Christians, Jews, capitalists. And uh, I was like, we got it covered. We're making it happen. And um, so I saw her teacher, and I was talking to her, and she said, hey, I was talking to Lily the other day, and uh, I asked if I was going to get a Christmas card. And Lily said, oh, Miss Malik, I'm sorry. We, we don't, Mommy and Daddy said they didn't have time to do a Christmas card this year. But you know what's really good for Christmas? Cold, hard cash. Um, so... Um, anyway, I mean, I, I mean, the ridiculousness of that comment, I mean, although our hearts kind of want it, I mean, you do begin to get things into perspective and you see, like, even though Christmas can be a reminder of the pressures and strains of life and even death uh, it, itself, what the love of God does, which is that perfect love, which is love without judgment, uh, it casts out fear and it allows you to simply enjoy it and the pressure is off and that's true of life that's true of life too and i have to, i have to constantly remind myself when i'm feeling pressure and i'm under judgment and i'm not talking about like andrew you've done something wrong and you need to make it right that i should feel uh, but those times where i realize that so much of the pressure that i put on my own self i have to realize like i'm no longer under judgment right jesus has taken on the judgment that was aimed at me he's taken it upon himself and it's been crucified with him. So that's why we say we have been crucified with Christ, and yet we live. You know, ourselves, our own lives, which were under the judgment of God, now, now no longer are. And so that wonderful image of Scripture that when we talk about that we're hidden in Christ, that our lives are hidden with Christ, or that we're hidden in the cleft of the rock, uh, it, it's, it means that, that when the law and sin and judgment come after us, they can't find us. Uh, it's like the perfect game of spiritual hide-and-go-seek. Uh, when, when the law and judgment is looking for you and trying to condemn you, it can't find you because your life is hidden in Jesus. But what the law and judgment is able to find out is Jesus. Right? The, all of it is poured out uh, upon this little baby uh, that would take it upon himself at the cross uh, so, that we, uh, so that we might live. So with St. Paul, uh, he's able just to go for it in a way where he's just done caring. Now, we should still care. Uh, we should still iron our clothes and, and brush our hair. I, Lily has tried to pull that one on me. She's like, well, you told me that I shouldn't care so much about this stuff. I was like, just a little bit. Just care enough. Just you know, vanity's okay in some ways. Uh, and so, but I'm not. Ta- I'm talking about being able to go through life, and and by the, that's love. Being shaped by love is the complete because the opposite of love is not hate in the Bible. The opposite of love is actually apathy. All right, so if I get a married couple who come in and they are upset with one another and they're having difficulties in their marriage and they're yelling at one another, I know it's going to be fine. Why? Because they still care. They still care enough to get angry and mad. But if they come in and one of them's really upset and the other one's just sort of like, 
you know, whatever, that's, that's actually when I begin to worry about it because that's the opposite of, of love, is apathy and, and not caring uh, in that way. So that's a not caring rooted outside of love, uh, but a sense of not caring, or at least understanding that you're no longer co- under condemnation, rooted in love, has a transformative power. It allows you to love other people uh, in, in the same way. Uh, and so St. Paul is able to, one, uh, he's got it coming from both sides, and he's able to boldly proclaim the gospel uh, because he knows that his life is in God's hands, that, that he, he belongs uh, to the Lord. And there's not this overwhelming fear of, well, what if the Christians don't like me in Jerusalem? What if uh, the Jews uh, do try to kill me? Well, I mean, God has a plan for that. We're going to put you in a basket. We're going to put you over the wall. And you're going to show up in Jerusalem. And it takes one person, Barnabas, Barnabas, to go to bat for Paul and say, he's our man. Just trust that the Lord is in this. Now, how many times in our lives where we've been in a situation where it's all coming down and it's, it's one thing to say, what a friend we have in Jesus. We know that Jesus is there for us. We know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, but the power of an advocate in your own lives. I mean, I think back uh, to several instances in my life uh, where I felt completely vulnerable and just thought, what if there were somebody here to stand up for me, to actually who had the authority to stand in the gap and say, now, wait a minute, hold up. I mean, when I was in seminary, I told you I had a very difficult time and I was part of the problem. Uh, trust me. In fact, uh, there was one instance where a prank had been pulled at the seminary and someone said that we were under spiritual warfare. And, uh, and I said, no, actually, you're just under my warfare. Um, uh, but what I had done is I'd taken, uh, and I thought it was, a, it was a stretch for them to say that, but we had a principal who was new, and he was this huge, burly guy, replaced Alistair McGrath, and um, he wore the same purple Adidas sweatshirt every day, every day. And my room overlooked uh, his backyard, and there was a really great apple tree in the backyard, and I could see that he actually owned a couple. He owned a couple. So uh, I went uh, to the department store and I bought uh, one. First, I crept down there. I looked at what size it was. And I went to the department store. I bought one that was a size too big and then one that was a size too small. And so uh, I replaced them uh, one at a time as they would go through. And so he would wear them, too, and he'd sort of come through and he'd be like, I'm gaining weight. I don't know what's going on. I'm gaining weight. And then I'd switch to the bigger one, and he'd sort of be, I'm losing weight. I'm losing weight. Um, so I finally fessed up to that. His wife said she saw me climb in the back but thought it was such a good idea. that. Um, so uh, uh, but so I, I, I was asking for it in seminary, and, um, and all I needed was some, you know, but, but there, were some, there was one tutor I had in particular who really thought it was his job to make my life miserable. I don't know if you've ever had a boss or someone. In, like, they just got it out for you. And it's not a conspiracy. They really have it out for you, right? I mean, that, that happens. So, like, Christians, they're like, I think Paul has it out for me. No, he's just a... No, there are times in life where someone really has it out for you. And you need a Barnabas or you need someone to just be like, whoa. Whoa, and that person for me was a guy named Michael Green uh, who taught evangelism at Wycliffe Hall. 
and um, and uh, he was just he was great. Uh, he was he would pull me aside and he'd be like, well, I can't actually tell you what he would say because it would be inappropriate for class. But he would say, don't let the so and sos get you down. You know, don't don't worry about it. And uh, and finally one day uh, in a faculty meeting, I had come up as an issue. Uh, and I mean, part of the problem, I was, I, I know I sound terrible, but I, I was an American. That was part of the problem. And so they all thought that I was either a millionaire or a rancher from Texas, and, um, or both. And, um, and Michael was just like, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know what, what the problem is here. He said, you know, uh, and, he, and he walked through uh, the, uh, all the demerits that he had received, even though we don't get demerits, but he talked about his own life in seminary, and he became the Archbishop of Canterbury's advisor for evangelism uh, and wrote a wonderful book called Evangelism in the New Testament. Uh, he's preached here before and is just a really wonderful guy. And so having him uh, sort of stand up for me made all the difference in the world. And so if you're in a situation like St. Paul where you're getting it from all sides and people really are out to get you, uh, I'm praying for you and pray that God would send a Barnabas into your life in order to be an advocate for you, to simply speak up for you. Now, for a lot of you in this room, who that person ought to be is your spouse, right? Um, and uh, and that's, that's a very hard role to play. But if you have any role to play, especially uh, for your spouse, it is to be so for them that you're actually against yourself sometimes. And so that is the power of, of having uh, that advocate, which is a type of Jesus to us in our own uh, lives. And it's not just when we're under condemnation, when we're under the fear of death, when we think that people are coming at us, that sometimes, sometimes that's good to have someone come alongside us and say, you know what, perfect love cast out all fear. That's true but they're still out to get me, and I'm still uh, afraid of death. What then? Uh, What then? Um, Sometimes it's just as simple as praying and saying, God, you're going to have to open my heart to this, and you're going to have to put it in there. Uh, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I'm afraid of dying. Uh, I'm afraid of the hold that that has on my life. I'm afraid that any time I have this symptom and I get online and I look it up, that, that something very bad is, is going to happen. Uh, I'm afraid that, that my life is, is falling apart. I'm afraid that they're out to get me. I just need somebody to stand in the gap. Uh, God, help me. And he does. He really actually does. Now, he doesn't always do it in the ways that we would like or as quickly as we would like, uh, but he does it. And sometimes he does it without us knowing. I didn't know all of that about Michael Green until after I graduated seminary. None of it. And at the time, I kept praying, God, why don't you have somebody stand up for me to this, to this bully? Now, afterward, I found out, Michael told me, he's like, well, one, you need to know that I was standing up for you. Two, you need to know that he actually received a, a letter of condemnation from the University of Oxford for his behavior toward you. And I was like, can I get that framed? Is there something that, how do I get my hands on that? Uh, and uh, it would have been really nice to know that, but you know what, that probably would have been one of the worst things. Um, I'm a really bad winner, right? In our family, I grew up in a family full of boys, and it was win if you can, lose if you must, but always cheat. And, uh, and it, was, it was just like winning at, at all costs, but God in his mercy kept me from knowing that. Uh, and so don't, don't think that God is not uh, operating uh, in that area. And of course, what happens is God works it all out pretty quickly, 
uh, as Paul goes into Jerusalem and he is accepted uh, as not just a disciple, but as an apostle. The criteria for being an apostle is that you actually had to see a physical manifestation of the risen Lord Jesus, which St. Paul did see uh, on the road. uh, He encountered on the road to Damascus uh, the risen Lord, uh, as all the other ones uh, had that were in the upper room uh, that day, as well as others. So um, we're going to move on. Uh, Next week, of course, is, uh, is our Sunday school Social. I don't know why we call it, but anyway, we don't have Sunday school. We just mingle in the in Klingman Commons, and you can ask me all kinds of tough questions uh, then, and uh, and we will pick it back up uh, on. Uh, I was about to say Craig Smalley will be with you on January the fifth, but he may not be. So uh, we'll figure it out. But you'll be in good hands. Don't worry. Barnabas is coming. Uh, questions, comments, concerns. Well, I guess I'm just reflecting on Robert Capon's book mm-hmm. on the parables of how his take on it is how we have to die to everything, yeah. that the parables are offering of how we have to yeah. die time after time after time, day after day. And yeah. I think, at least for me, in life it helps me, but I think in the overall picture it helps us prepare for death. And, yeah. Gore Vidal said that every time I see a friend succeed – Something in me dies a little bit, and um, and he was his perspective was it bothered him, uh, but you know what? From our perspective, that's a good thing. It means the ego is dying a little bit more every day. Mary Kay. Yeah, Joe Gibbs is doing great. He's out in Trustful. He's gained 30 pounds. Just kidding. Uh, I'm kidding. He's not. He's still in good shape, Joe. Uh, Joe's doing really well. Things are going well. We miss him. He'll be back here uh, the third Sunday in January, the third Sunday in February, uh, and so on and so forth until we wrap up, uh, until they call a new rector. Uh, But things are going really, really well out there. I mean, if anything, just changing their perspective. Uh, I mean, it. they just... um, just it's it's just interesting to hear their perspective on things and how they're not closed-minded at all, but just they don't realize the potential they have. Uh, just not only their location, but the the people they have going there, and um, and attendance is up, uh, attendance is up, and things are going well. And Joe's really throwing himself in, and so that's been a big blessing to us and fun to hear about. I'll uh, you know I'll I'll have Joe write something up. We need it. We need more updates, and I'll have him put something in the adventurer. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.